right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. That. We don't got time for that. Right? Let's go. Crank it. Crank it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Have I mentioned yet how horrible I find the transfer portal to be? How I just think it's terrible that all these athletes are... You know, being given the opportunity to go uh, find new opportunities elsewhere. Have I have I brought that up yet? No. What's the change of heart? I thought you were the no, other I've, way. I've always felt that way. You have? Yeah. I've made the, it very clear on here. Check the tape, bud. I mean, I don't have to spoon feed it to you. Sometimes it's just context clues, and well, you know, must you're have been left... missing all the context. Well, here's some context for you. Karan Prunty. Freshman All-American cornerback for Kansas last year announced that he's entering the transfer portal. You starting to to figure it out yet? Yeah, we should ban the portal. Yeah. KU's best player, either side of the ball, is gone. What's up with that? That's not fair. It's not right. The transfer portal must be abolished. Karam Pronti is the fourth Kansas player to enter the transfer portal since Lance Leipold and this staff have taken over at Kansas. And he and Marcus Harris are probably two of your top three, four players on the entire team. And they're sophomores. Was Harris a true sophomore too? Or I guess they'd both be what? Harris was freshman a red shirt point. freshman last year. Yeah. And Cronpronti was a true freshman. A freshman All-American. But because last, last year didn't year. count, they'd both still be freshmen, technically. Yeah. I mean, the guy is a shutdown corner, probably your best defensive player, and somebody who you, you viewed as a, a pillar of the defense heading into this new era of Kansas football. And just last week, we were talking to Kevin Flaherty, and we joked about how when Marcus Harris and DeJon Terry entered the portal— Almost a month ago, it sort of felt like maybe the floodgates were going to open and a lot of guys were going to go seek greener pastures, but then it didn't happen. You had guys like Kenny Logan coming out and stating his commitment to the team, and you felt like maybe we should pump the brakes on the idea that there's going to be this mass exodus of Kansas players. Karan Prunty literally like two weeks ago tweeted out, hashtag new profile pick, changes profile pick, pick of him in a Kansas jersey. And you last week. I was like, oh, that's confirmation. He's coming back. And now, maybe him tweeting out hashtag new profile pick simply signified that he has a new profile pick. (laughs) Starting to think maybe there's not always a hidden meaning behind something that an athlete does on social media. Right? Just file that one away for later use. Last year, the numbers for Karam Prunty, don't really stand out or tell you the full story. One interception, 26 tackles, 
one tackle for a loss, a forced fumble. Okay, what does that tell you about what this kid brought to the table? Not much. But he was a starter, a full-time starter all season. 525 total snaps. And according to Pro Football Focus, when quarterbacks targeted Karam Prunty, they completed only 38% of their passes. That is how you wind up a freshman All-American. That's how you get pegged to be a shutdown corner. And he's big guy. I mean, 6'1". He's got good size for a cornerback. I'd be shocked if he doesn't end up at a high-quality football yeah, program. Yeah, Marcus Harris and John Terry both ended up at SEC schools. So Yeah, Auburn for Harris, Tennessee for DeJounte. Terry. I mean, so he's that's the type of guy who, who might be... I could see him going to, like, a South Carolina, and then we look up in three years, he's second-round draft pick. And he'll start. That's the yeah. thing. He'll go to an SEC team. He's not going to compete for a job. He's going to start. Because he looks the part of a shutdown corner. And he would have been a huge piece to have for Kansas. But I think it was Jesse Newell who said it shortly after Lance Leipold was hired when he came on the show. And he brought up, I didn't even ask him about Karam Prunty. And he said, listen, it's against the odds that Karam Prunty will be back next season. Not because he knew anything specifically about Karam Prunty and what he wants to do and how he's going to fit with this new coaching staff. But just simply because They now have more freedom of movement ever, talking about players, and it's coaching turnover. And those two things would lead to the idea that a lot of guys are going to go look for new places. And between Prunty, Harris, and Terry, those are probably three of your top four defensive players. I mean, it's got to be tough, too, because specifically with Prunty, maybe he did kind of get into the idea of, well, I don't know, maybe I'll go. No, actually, I'll stay. Uh, I saw that, uh, I think it was Devon Ferguson, or um, I don't know, maybe it was, it was somebody else was like, this one hurts. It, it felt like it almost surprised maybe some of the players. I I kind of wonder if you get in a situation where you go home after spring practice, and now you're hearing more more words in your ears. You know, you sure you want to stick around there? This is your chance. You could go here, here, here hey, I've heard from this college, they reached out to me, they'd be interested in you. It gets a lot easier to make that move after you're home now, which, I don't know, maybe they're back in class now, but for a little bit there, they would have gone home, and you're hearing from those guys as opposed to your teammates who are telling you, no, stick around, Like we're going to do this together. Yeah, it's, I mean, again, I hate the idea of trying to put yourself through this kid's thought process because there's a million different reasons as to why he could have made this decision no, I'm just and why saying he could make it's it like now. It's like tough timing when you yeah, hire a coach for sure. that late and then it's two weeks later the kids go home, you know? Yeah. There's nothing Lance Leipold can do about it, but... I would say all in all, from a volume standpoint, it's still been relatively positive that you've only had four guys transfer. All four of them are on defense. We mentioned the three of them and then uh, Valerian Agba, who I don't... Cornerback, I don't think... Maybe he's um, Charlotte. Charlotte. He's going to Charlotte. So, not a major program for him. So, it hurts Kansas not having a guy like that because that's a good piece. First off, you're starting defensive tackle, starting D-end, and a starting cornerback, and a shutdown cornerback. An all-conference-sized hole there in your secondary. Not easily going to fill that. You know, I think back to 
the 2015 season, I believe it was, when you had two really solid players on the Kansas defense and Dorrance Armstrong and Daniel Wise. And I want to make sure I got that. No, it was 2016. Because they stuck around for another year and it wasn't quite as good. 2016 was a rough year for Kansas, but it was a it was a very optimistic foundation being set because of the defense. KU only went two and ten that year. But they started to show signs of life on defense with Dorrance Armstrong and Daniel Wise. And Dorrance that year had 20 tackles for a loss, which was number one in the Big 12. He had 10 sacks, which was second in the Big 12. And he came back the next year, and I believe he was the preseason. Yeah, Big 12 player of the year. Yeah, Yeah. defensive player. Yeah, Defensive player of the year. And the stats went down significantly. Defenses obviously knew what to expect. That same season, Daniel Wise had, I believe, Nine tackles for a loss, three sacks. The next year, he's the one who sort of burst out and and was the leader defensively. But you had those two pieces, and it felt like you finally had something. Even though you weren't getting production all over, the offense still stunk. You felt like you had some, some real talent that were able to be productive in spite of the lack of talent around them. But Kansas still went 2-10 that year. Even though you got an extra season out of them, you didn't see that growth. And the only reason I bring that up is is not to say that it doesn't matter that you lose out on Marcus Harris and Dejon Terry and Karan Prunty, because it does. Those guys would have been starters, and now you have to fill them in with guys who probably aren't going to be as good as they would have been. What I would say is that having those productive players does not guarantee you anything. It doesn't guarantee you wins in the short term and it doesn't guarantee you wins in the in the in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee you that that foundation is being set because one or two or three players don't make a foundation. It's about the ability to establish a culture, bring in guys, develop them across the board. If if you want to make a dent in the Big 12, it's not going to be because you had a good cornerback. It's not going to be because you had a good pass rusher. We've seen Kansas have good cornerbacks and good pass rushers. But it didn't lead to wins. This is bigger than that. The The hole that you have dug yourself into as a program requires a hell of a lot more than a couple players sort of smattered across the team who are putting up good individual numbers or who are doing their job. This is a cultural fix that is needed. And we should still be optimistic if you were a week ago that Lance Leipold and his coaching staff are going to be the, the guys to get it done. You should still be optimistic that they're going to get it done today. They just have less tools at their disposal to do it with. But both in the short term and the long term, it doesn't change what those guys, what those coaches are going to be capable of doing. Karan Pronti's not going to move the Vegas line for over-under for wins or losses. Maybe a couple plays there that were going to be made that are, now aren't. Maybe a couple times where a team scores a touchdown they wouldn't have if Karan Prunty been out there. But uh, I, I still wouldn't go as far as to say. I mean, you can say it's a big loss, but how that loss will manifest itself and show itself, probably not going to be quite as noticeable as it may seem like on the surface. 
Speaking of decisions and freedom, today is the one-month mark from when guys have to withdraw their name from the NBA draft. The NBA draft withdrawal deadline is July 7th. And KU still waiting on decisions from Remy Martin, from Ochai Abaji, from Jalen Wilson. And today on the day where freshmen are moving into the dorms and we're starting to get a really good picture of what this Kansas basketball team is going to look like, there's three big names, three really big names that you could in some form or fashion probably say you're three of your top four players, three of your top five players, all guys that if returned, you'd probably pretty easily peg into a starting lineup. Yet, Bill Self and his coaching staff are still going to have to wait another month, we think, unless guys make a decision before then, before finding out what exactly is going to happen. And as the NBA playoffs sort of rage on, teams are being eliminated, more organizations are diving deeper into draft process, scouting, watching film, looking at players. That means guys are probably going to start getting feedback. Even without the the combine happening, you know, these guys have agents. They're talking to teams. They're getting feedback, getting an idea of what's going to happen if they were to leave their names in the draft. So I don't know how soon we're going to hear decisions on those guys. I thought the combine was happening. Maybe well, it's not to the full. Flight. No, I'm saying it. No, oh, like yeah, not okay. right, right now. Yeah. Um. I so I thought it was like it's the end of June. So like June twenty something. I, I believe twenty first through the twenty seventh, something like that. Um. That means in two weeks. That's yeah. what I would circle as the big decision time, because that's going to be your biggest workout zone. That's going to be where you meet with more NBA GMs, scouts, all that stuff than anywhere else, because it's all in one spot. So I think that's when you'll start hearing decisions after that. So I would guess the last week of June. Yeah, because I think what can happen now is that guys are going and doing workouts and maybe you're getting some feedback from some scouts, but you're not going to get any sort of assurances if that's what you're looking for. Like if you're Ochai Baji and you want an assurance that even if I don't get drafted, I'm going to get a two-way deal from this team. This team really likes me. They're not going to spend a pick on me, but they'd be willing to bring me on and give me a two-way deal. You're not you're not getting those assurances until teams are you're unless you're talking to a GM or somebody in the front office, which up until this point you probably haven't been having any communication with those guys. And I think things change too, and that's something that that should be noted as well. Like a guy may go into the draft process saying, "I want to hear this or that," or "I want this sort of assurance," and you may get into it for a couple of weeks and say, "You know what? I kind of like this not being in school thing. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of like this freedom thing." Uh, I'll just take my chances. Even if I get, if I don't get that two-way deal, it's not a, an exact science to the point where when guys do interviews, they always tell you everything that sounds right. If I hear this, then I'll do this. If I don't hear that, then I'll come back. For some guys, it may be that simple. For other guys, it may be more of a feel thing. It may be more of a, you know, I, I went all in knowing I wanted to go pro, knowing I, I want to hear my name called. I want to get drafted. I want to get a contract. I want to start making money. And then all of a sudden, you do the the process for a little bit and perhaps your priorities change. My feelings as to what's going to happen for KU next year haven't really changed. Uh, I think they're all three coming back. They do all three come back. I think you're looking at probably the number two team in the country to start the season behind Gonzaga. And there's going to be some people who will have them number one. Be a really scary, a really fun team. But there's a lot of uncertainty there, mainly with Ochai because it seems to be a pretty split decision, including with himself. I mean, if you go back to that piece, that interview he did with C.J. Moore of The Athletic, I think that was two weeks ago, 
sounds to me like a guy who's very much on the fence and who doesn't have his mind made up. And that's so funny to me the way that people will talk about him as if, oh, no, he's coming back. Oh, no, he's, he's definitely gone. Because I've heard that from multiple people, by the way. It's crazy. I'll get DMs. I'll get text messages from people who will say, like people I don't even know who will say, hey, man, by the way, I know a guy who was in this place with Ochai. Like, he was working out with him down there, and they said, for sure, like, he's he's coming back. Like, he told, I kind of whispered to him, like, hey, what are you going to do, Ochai? Like, oh, yeah, he told he told my guy, he told him he's definitely coming back. And then less than 24 hours later, I'll hear from somebody else who will say, oh, no, I talked to so-and-so a month ago, and they, they said they talked to somebody in his camp, and he's for sure gone. Like, his decision was made by the time he declared. And then there's other people who just do the investigative work and who just like read through the release statement with a fine tooth comb when he announced that he was entering the draft and KU issued his statement. He's like, did you read the wording? That sounds like to me a guy who's not coming back. Listen, man, it's a it's literally yes or no. It's 50-50. So you want to plant your stake and say, I know for sure he's coming back, or I know for sure he's leaving his name in the draft. I mean, you got a 50% chance of being right, and if you puff your chest out and say it with conviction and you win the coin flip, then now you're, I guess, an insider. It's that easy. It's that easy to establish yourself as an Ochai Abaji insider. Just say it with conviction and toss a coin. And if you're right, you're a genius. If you're wrong, well, nobody's going to remember that anyway, so you might as well just do it. <laughs> uh, I, I, on the, I just don't care enough. Because I, I haven't heard anything from anybody that I really trust. So, but I don't know. He maybe will go. He maybe won't. If I were him, I wouldn't. I've said that a million times. If you want to toil away in the G League next year, that's your decision. I, I think he would benefit himself to come back, play on a team with as talented of a roster around you as you've ever had, play with actual playmakers, get more open shots than you've ever had in your life, Watch your shooting numbers skyrocket on a team that's going to compete for a national championship. Uh, I think that would do wonders for your draft stock. Or maybe you just want to go get paid because you can do that, by the way. If he goes right now, he'll get paid from somebody somewhere to play basketball. And if that's all you want, then by all means, go for it. I just don't know what the hell he's going to do. All right, it's about 23 past the hour. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwert. You're listening to Rock Chuck Sports Talk. There's a lot of things you might be not really living up to snuff about right now. Are you getting enough haircuts? Are you shaving enough? Are you keeping up with your personal hygiene? Well, one thing that you don't want to be a loser about is having that dirty car. You know, whether it's just driving around town, whether it's you picking up a friend, you want the clean car. And don't you want the sparkly clean car that you're proud of? Well, guess what? Tommy's Express Car Wash. They are going to hook you up with a great car wash that's going to get that car sparkly nice so that when you go to the store, everybody's looking at your car and says, oh, man, where did that guy get his car washed? It's wash, rinse, repeat at Tommy's Express Car Wash. You can download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's right, endless washing for one low price with the Tommy Club app. It's unlimited car washes. Unlimited clean, shiny, and dry. Unlimited use of exclusive app lane. Unlimited access to all Tommy's Express locations, because there's a lot of them. Unlimited guest service. And most importantly, unlimited happiness. They've got the tools and expertise to keep your car clean inside and out. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax, wheel cleaning and tire gloss, 
underbody flush and spot free rinse and vacuuming. So download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy that endless washing. Go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. If you kind of tuned out, if you're a Fairweather Royals fan and, you know, you you sort of casually paid attention in the early 2010s, then you got really into it during the World Series run. And you've since sort of started tuning out again because they haven't really been relevant. Now would be the time to ingratiate yourself with this organization once again. If only for the idea that you get to know these players as everybody else. Even the the real diehard fans get to know them. Maybe the diehards know about these guys and know who they were in the minors and what they've done and how high the organization is on them and where they rank in, in terms of the top prospects and all that stuff. But in terms of what they're going to do and what they actually mean to the major league club, nobody really knows. And once again, we get to know a new prospect Jackson Coar, 5 and 0, sub 1 ERA with Triple A Omaha, set to make his major league debut against the Angels. Let's talk about it. David Lesky of Royals Review, subscribe to his Substack Inside the Crown. David joins us now on the show. David, thank you once again for joining us today. What does Jackson Coar's major league debut signal for the Royals organization? I mean, it's just it's the fourth guy in that draft class to make it to the big leagues, right? It's, it's 2021. They drafted these guys three years ago, and the organization that couldn't graduate pitchers has just turned them out. Is <laughs> one after another. Um, the only thing that's stopping the fifth guy from that first day uh, from from debuting this year is that he has Tommy John surgery, so he'll be next year. But um, it's it, it signals that they they have at least hit on all of them as major league caliber pitchers. Now, a guy like Daniel Lynch, he really struggled. We saw it. It was three starts. I think I don't, each one didn't get worse because the middle one was the worst of the three. But he, he had some serious issues, and he had to go back down. And that, that might happen with Coar. It didn't happen with Singer. Um, it sort of happened with Bubich. He started the year in the minor – or on the, I guess on the alternate site. But, you know, Coar is the only guy of those four now – to have had triple-A success before coming to the big leagues because Lynch came up before the triple-A season even started. Obviously, Singer and, and Bubich didn't pitch in triple-A before last season. So um, he has, he has the, the best minor league pedigree of all four of them, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what he can do. It's a tough top of the lineup for the Angels. I haven't seen the lineup yet, but what they generally put out. But it's, there's a, <laughs> it, it, it quiets down after the four or five spots. So has a chance if he can if he can handle those those top top few guys to to put together a good performance and you know hopefully hit the ground running better than better than Daniel Lynch did but maybe maybe more like Singer did last season. How much do you think that the success in AAA does matter or should matter when deciding to bring a guy up? Um, I think it matters more with hitters personally because you see a lot of pitchers in AAA who. And that, that's where you're going to see the junk. That's where you're going to see if a guy can hit a changeup, if a guy can hit a curve. And, and it's just not, not what I mean is not, not the 97-mile-per-hour fastball. With pitchers, I, I think it's more about the repetitions, honestly. Um, there are some, some big league hitters in AAA, and this season especially, guys are rehabbing in AAA more than they usually do. So if you've got maybe rehabbing major leaguers in the minors, you see more of them. So that, 
that makes a difference. Um, but yeah, I think it's more just the fact that he's pitching and 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 pitching competitive games. I mean, you, last season there weren't any competitive games for these guys, and that's that's part of why Chris Bubich was at the big league level because they wanted him pitching in competitive games. So. It, that the repetitions are important, um, but yeah, I mean, the higher level you succeed at, the, the at least you get, gain more confidence, if nothing else. And and there's also probably something to the level of hitter and and all that. So I think it's important. I don't think it's vital. I think guys can skip AAA and and be okay. But hey, it doesn't hurt to have success at the highest level outside of the majors. What was the scouting report on Coar coming out of Florida? Like, what was the headline as to why the Royals targeted and selected him? Well, I mean, he's always had the phenomenal changeup. That that's that's been number one for him. Um, it's I've seen I've seen somebody graded an eighty on the twenty eighty scale, probably more a seventy, which <laughs> that's perfectly okay. Um, that's it, it's a ridiculous pitch. It's a big league pitch right now. His fastball also was there, um, upper mid upper nineties. He can touch ninety nine. He can touch a hundred probably. Yeah, that the problem that he's had with it is it's been a little bit straight. Although it seems like he's added a little bit of spin rate to that and, and got it to move a little bit more. Um, and the reason he didn't go third or fourth, and he went thirty fourth, was it thirty fourth or thirty third? I can't remember which one he was. But the reason he went there instead of earlier is because he didn't really have a third pitch. That was kind of the downside. He's developed a curveball. I've seen I've seen varying reports, but generally it seems like it's about average. Um, you, know, you watch highlights, and of course, it's never going to be anything bad. So it's it's hard to hard to gauge a pitch because they're never going to put the the curveball that got crushed to the left center field gap in the highlight reel. But um, yeah, people people are pretty bullish on that pitch. At, at, at least it just needs to be average. It doesn't need to be a, a seventy like his changeup because the changeup is so good. But but yeah, that that's the pitch that had everybody talking from the start and still does. In terms of upside. When you look not just at you know how you felt coming into this year, but go back to that draft class, right, where you got four pitchers, with Coar being the fourth now to make their major league debut. In terms of upside, like not only where does he rank amongst those four guys, but just sort of generally speaking, what is the the potential outlook for what this guy can become at the major league level? So, I tend to prefer pitchers with the changeup just because if you can, if you have a pitch that can get a hitter off balance, um, it doesn't have to be a changeup, but that's just the one that does it most often. I think that you have a higher upside and that's why I'm a little bit concerned about Brady Singer. And that's why I'm less concerned about a guy like Chris Bubich, who has a great changeup. Coar has a great changeup. Daniel Lynch has a, has a pretty good changeup. Um, with Coar, I think the upside is he mixes it with an upper nineties fastball and a potentially good curveball, I think the upside is number two, maybe even fringe number one starter. And I think his upside is as high as Lynch's, maybe even a touch higher, honestly. the the To me, the odds of him getting there are a little bit lower than with a guy like Lynch, just because Lynch has a good four-pitch mix. I think he's a little bit more of a pitcher than Coar is, if, if that makes sense. just he's He's just a little bit better at, the, the finer aspects of pitching, I guess, if, if you know, to, to, to kind of put it in a weird way. Um, but the stuff is just so good that, I mean, he could, he can dominate a game. Absolutely. So it's what he can do is very impressive. I'm, 
I'm curious to see if he can get there. Um, but I mean, there, even if he has a bad game, <laughs> there will be points in the game where you go, Whoa, because he did the changeup was, so, was just dropped off the table or he just blew a 98 mile per hour fastball by a guy. So there's, there's just a lot to like about Coar, and, and hopefully he can harness it all and, and have a good debut. Talking to David Lesky here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. David, have the Royals remained consistent in sort of the threshold that you need to pass in order to get called up, or is it less about that and more about, you know, situationally what the major league club needs at that time? I, mean, I don't think they have been consistent because Lynch, as an example, got the call up before Coar. And Coar had done more in the minors, right? Because Lynch only ended the year in 2019 in Wilmington. Um, I know that he was still working on some things, so it's not entirely fair to say that. But I, I think that Coar probably deserved the call up ahead of Lynch, in my opinion. Um, obviously, it didn't work out. So, so far, my opinion is correct, but it's all in hindsight. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that I, I kind of like that they're inconsistent because – I think it shows that they're not putting each pitcher on the exact same plan. I think it shows that, you know, we, we think this guy is ready, even though he hasn't done this because of this, whatever it might be. Whereas I feel like in the past, it was once you dominate a level for eight starts, you go to the next level. Then you dominate that level. You go to the next one, no matter what, whether, you know, I think back to Coar's start a couple weeks ago, or maybe last weekend, he, when he was thought to be potentially the starter on that Saturday game in Minnesota, he pitched the night before in Omaha and he had five really good innings. He struck out, I think four, he walked a couple, but he could only get through five because he had a couple 10 pitch at bats because he just couldn't get a swing and miss. And so there's more to the box score. And I think that by being inconsistent, it maybe shows that they're actually paying attention to those things. Whereas I don't think they did in the past. So, I think they are inconsistent, but I think it's a good thing. Going back, and I don't mean to, to beat a dead horse, but with this farm system, which was kind of one of the big headlines coming into this season, or really even coming into last season, was we're going to start to see all of these young players start to make their major leagues debuts, and this is going to be sort of the sign as to whether or not the next step for the Royals is going to be one of championship contention, or if it's going to have to be you know anything less than that. Which, anything less than that, it's... You, know, you, you sort of piece it together and either you hit the reset button or you just make do with what you can. That was sort of the idea going into 2020 when we saw Brady Singer and when we saw Critch Bubich coming up. So far, do you feel like they have, they've passed the test? Do you feel like this is the bill of goods that we were sold? And if, if so, what is sort of that next step that you want to see from, from this young core of players? Yeah, I mean, I think the farm system has performed. Um, the, the most encouraging thing is some offensive prospects have kind of figured it out, which that was a big issue. I wrote about this the other day. They overhauled their minor league development. Um, they overhauled the hitting side. They kind of revamped the pitching side. And we didn't get to see any of it because it was all after the 2019 season. We were very excited to see how guys like Prado and Melendez and and Sully Matias and all these guys would rebound from a terrible 2019, and then we never got to see it. <laughs> and so we come into 2021, and all of a sudden you look down in Double A, and Nick Prado is absolutely destroying the ball. Bobby Witt Jr., who was not part of the down 2019 group, but um, he's he's really starting to come on in Double A. He's got nine home runs, I think. He's in his last six games plus one at bat yesterday. He struck out five times. So the the contact is getting better. Um, MJ Melendez is a guy who swung and missed like 24% of the time in 2019. He's at like 11% this year. So, 
I mean, that's a huge difference. I mean, they, we've just seen a lot of strides. And even a guy like Edward Olivares, who um, wasn't part of the Royals in 2019, he seems to have made some strides, too. And he, he's back at big league level for right now. Um, but, you know, that, that shows a lot from the organization because I think the pitching is going fine. <laughs> we've seen Singer come up, and, yeah, there are some issues there. Um, but he's been pretty good. Chris Bubich was solid last year, and he's been fantastic this season. Daniel Lynch had his issues, but he's, I think they figured out what those issues were, and he's come back, or he's back down. He's coming, he's pitching well. He'll be back. Um, you know, they've, I feel like things have gone about as well as expected. And to this point, not knock on wood, but they've only lost the one guy to Tommy John surgery, which is obviously you don't want to lose anybody, but, you know, when you throw that many numbers at it, you're probably going to have a couple. Um, I, I think that things have progressed really well for them. I think that they are, if you asked Dayton Moore, he'd say he's happy, I would think. And, you know, I, I think we'll we'll see more debuts this season. Um, I think we'll see a lot next year. <laughs> I, think, I think we're getting a lot closer to actually seeing a young Royals team and not just an inexperienced Royals team. But yeah, I, I, I think things have gone well so far this season. On the farm, at least. Well, and the Bailey's. I mean, they're over 500, so that's good, too. David Lesky joining us here on Rock Chuck Sports Talk. It's funny, I looked at the, you know, the offensive numbers we talked about last week, uh, the Pirates being, uh, what, what the stat that you wrote about was the third highest scoring series, despite it just being a, a two-game <laughs> series. Really, over the, the last two weeks, David, this has been one of the more potent offenses in the major leagues. I know there's still some things not, to be excited about offensively, but what do you make of this sort of offensive explosion we've seen from them lately? Well, I think they beat up on pitching they're supposed to. Um, yesterday, Bailey Ober, I, you know, he's, he's a rookie, and I saw somebody screaming on Twitter about him having a nine ERA yeah, in four innings. Um, he, he looked good yesterday. I, I've seen him in the minors before, and I thought he was like a young Chris Young as far as velocity, and he threw a 94 yesterday. That came out of nowhere. So I thought he looked good. And I, you know, the offense kind of had a bad day yesterday. But they, they beat up on the pitching they're supposed to beat up on. Um, I think what a little bit of luck is evened out. I mean, they were they were so bad with runners on and runners in scoring position for a while. It's like you're hitting the ball hard and not finding holes even. And that's kind of evened out a little bit. Andrew Benintendi's gotten real hot in that regard. Salvador Perez obviously had a good few games, although he and Santana were over 15 on Saturday and Sunday. Not great. Um if you want to see why they lost by one run each game, the two biggest power hitters in the lineup, neither one could muster a hit. So that's, that's a problem. But I think all in all, they've kind of evened out the luck a little bit more than anything. But it, it's helped that their hitters who are supposed to be good outside of uh, Solaire and Dozier, those guys have, have pretty much stepped up over the last couple of weeks. They've, they've done what they're supposed to do. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Whit Merrifield has gotten hot and the offense has gotten going. I think that they go hand in hand. So hopefully Wick can keep it going, but um, if he can't, might be a problem. But I, I think that that's, that's a big part of it too. What do you make of what's going on with Adalberto Mondesi? When we talked last week, it was kind of optimism abound that, okay, this guy's feeling good, um, should be back sooner rather than later. Now he is on the IL. What is going on with him right now? Well, I think the Royals, I wrote this today, and I think their mindset was his timing was so good that if he could come back in five days, they didn't care about the roster spot. And 
while I disagree with that, I understand it at least. So I think that's why he spent so long not on the injured list. But I think they, they looked at it and they said, look, there's going to be another five to 10 days. So let, let's get him on the injured list right now and get him healthy. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's disappointing. And I, and I think it's disappointing to you. It's disappointing to me. It's disappointing to Mike Matheny. It's disappointing to Alberto Mondesi. I mean, every single person involved is just disappointed in this development because he, he just came back and he was hitting so well. He looked so good at the plate. Um, and it, it's a tough blow, but based on, no, they all, we also thought, we thought he might come back Thursday and he obviously didn't. So we'll see, but it sounds like when this 10 days is up, he should be ready to go. I don't know if he'll need a rehab stint. Um, I personally, I would probably give him two games in Omaha. I don't know, just to get his timing back a little bit before he comes to the big league level, because he's, he's a guy who, if he, if he struggles, it, it can snowball with him. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think this is a long-term thing. Um, but again, I thought he'd be back on Thursday or Friday, and, and here we are. He can't come back until next Monday. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask on, on that part of it. But I think uh, I, it seems like he should be back sooner than later and hopefully, fingers crossed, can finish the season. Uh, you know, he, he barely got through a week. So it's hard to predict that, but uh, hopefully he can. Because if they want to get where they're going, not only do they need Solaire and Dozier to start hitting, they need Montesi to play, period. They need him on the field. And without him, I, I, I think that there's, there's not a ton of hope of anything more than a 500 season, which would, wouldn't be the worst thing either. He is David Lesky. Check out his work, royalsreview.com. Subscribe to his Substack. It's free, man. It's free. Inside the Crown Substack, you get your Royals information in your email inbox every single day. Can't make it any easier for you, David. Always a pleasure, sir. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. All right. That is David Lesky, baseball prospectus inside the crown, Substack, talking Royals. Jackson Coar making his Royals debut. You can catch that all on the West Coast, so a little bit later than normal, right here on KLWN tonight. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Busy sports weekend. Very busy. Um, This is usually the time of year where we just have to rely upon baseball to get us through each day and get us through each week. But we had a little something to everything from the sports world. We had some big golf news, even some boxing news. Chad Ochocinco losing. I know that a lot of people didn't see that coming. A lot of people didn't even know that Chad Ochocinco was on the undercard for Logan Paul. Is he still won by Ochocinco? Yeah. I thought he was Chad Johnson now. No, I think he's forever Ocho Cinco. I met him down on Mass Street like a year ago. Two years ago, maybe. I think Matt is uh, a strong character. We're we're friends now. We're like best friends, actually. Didn't you just run up on him on Mass Street? I was literally just like walking down Mass Street. Okay. And... You're there walk- he was. You knew no, he I, was in town. I did not. I uh, Yes, you did. We talked about actually, it before okay, the maybe show. Maybe we did. But yeah, I was like walking one way. He was walking the other way. I noticed him as we were walking toward each other. And, you know, I stopped him. Got a picture with him. I was sly about it. Where are you? What did you say? Attention. Um, I, I don't remember. This was two years ago. Uh, 
I don't know, probably just something like, Hey, Mr. Ocho Cinco. No, hey, I don't think I said Ocho Mr. Ocho Cinco. I was like, Please, I'm a big fan. I, th- I think I said Mr. Johnson. Wow. But I don't remember. Actually, come to think of it like that, that's very debatable. Would I have called him Ocho Cinco? Would I have called him Johnson? Like, would I don't know. You were there. You were I don't there. Know. Do you think if I called him one or the other, he like looks back on that as disrespectful? If I called him the wrong one? Or at that point, like, no, are you asking? He's a celebrity. He's a celebrity. I don't think he cares as long as you're not a complete jerk about it. He didn't even try to get him on the show. Nah. He was in town. His daughter was like doing a that's track right. event at yeah. Rock Chalk Park. Well, that's cool. Good for you, man. Close personal friend, Ocho Cinco. Chad Ocho Cinco took the L this past weekend. So. But he, he hung around. Yeah, man, that's good. I'm glad you're still there to, to support yeah. him through thick and thin. All right. That, amongst many other things, up. For today's docket in another edition of Do We Give a Bleep? Well, let's just start right there in Miami. All those fights. Chad Ochocinco slash Johnson, whatever. Lost the fight, but he went the full distance. He almost got knocked out, but just stayed up. Uh, some other fights occurred as well. The most notable, Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather. Logan Paul went the distance with Floyd Mayweather. I'm guessing you didn't watch this. I didn't watch it. No, I was in it was the car. $50. I was in the car last night. Yeah, Would yeah. you have watched it if you were home? I wouldn't have paid for it. Mm. Which means... I would have watched it for free. How? Illegal. Illegal streaming. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. You're a criminal. I don't care. I'm not watching a 44-year-old semi-retired boxer go up against (laughs) a vlogger. Okay. Uh, It ended without a knockout. Surely you saw highlights, though, like on Twitter afterwards, Saw pictures. Saw pictures. Um, Listen... This was a non-scored fight, which means no matter what, nobody was going to win or lose. Now, yeah. knockouts were still legal, but nobody got knocked out. So that's essentially the headline here, is that Logan Paul didn't get knocked out <laughs> by Floyd Mayweather. But if you saw it, there were like certain points. Like, Floyd was messing with him. And there's actually one point where somebody like captured the still image where he hits him hard with a hook. And it looks like Logan Paul is about to get knocked out. Like, his his eyes go out. He starts to fall forward. But instead of Floyd letting him fall, he hugs him to keep him up. So, like, people are estimating that he just wanted to give the crowd a show and he was just, like, toying with him the whole time. Or that that was part of the deal. Might have been. Hey, we can both get a payday. Yeah. But you have to agree not to knock him out. You're you not going to lose. Just, they're just trying to set up the, the fight with his older brother. I don't know about that necessarily. I just think it was an easy payday for Floyd Mayweather and for uh, Logan Paul. It further his, you know, this count to his record career. Well, he didn't win or lose, so no. You look at the numbers though. Floyd Mayweather went forty-three of one hundred and seven in punches landed versus thrown. Logan Paul went 28 of 217, <laughs> so that's a 40% land percentage compared to a 217% land percentage. If you want to talk about like what this fight means, it's two different conversations for both the sport of boxing and for Logan Paul. For the sport of boxing, I think it's um, it's probably a, a negative in that now this, I think, just opens the door for guys like Logan Paul to enter the realm without really having the credentials to do so. The flip side is that it's further proof that you don't have to become beholden to the fight promoters to get 
a good fight. And maybe this will put pressure on the boxing federation and for promoters to just give people the the, fat, the fights that they want. Because if you don't, then they'll just go yeah. out of their way to do it without you. That's one thing that like the UFC has done really well with. Dana White, who's the head of the UFC, he puts like these fights together. It's not up to Conor McGregor. I mean, I mean, part of it is right. Like if you're if you're mouthing off against a certain fighter, like that may make it more inclined, make it more possible that you're going to fight that guy if you call that guy out in a post game. Then sure, you're probably going to fight in that guy. But you know why? Because you called him out, and now there's bad blood there, which is going to get people interested. And Dana White's going to schedule it, but he schedules it all. Like they don't have that in boxing, and so. On top of there not like being any stars, like this is the sad point we are with boxing. If you go back to the 80s, 90s, 70s, like boxers were the biggest athletes in in the world, or at least some of them. And now it's just like the biggest boxer still remaining is 44 year old Floyd Mayweather. Like, obviously the sport isn't doing well. Um, so, but yes, I do think Jake Paul is going to fight Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, what was the difference in? In pounds, like 30-pound difference. Yeah, but it was funny because the reach was like only an inch off. Yeah. Um, the, the, Jake Paul is fighting Tyron Woodley yeah. on like August 28th, I think it is. So there's a ways away before he does that. But that's the thing, man. They can't lose. You can't let these kids lose because these kids have went about it the opposite way. Instead of getting good at fighting and then growing your popularity, they have just entered their careers being super popular and are trying to get good as they go. The problem with doing that is you can't afford to lose because if you just start with popularity and then you lose, you're never going to get the opportunity to get bigger and better fights. That's why you have to go into a fight against a guy like Floyd Mayweather, make sure there's a no decision, make sure you don't get knocked out so that the dream is still alive, which in the case of Logan Paul, it is. So therefore, I don't know how you would paint this as a negative for him personally and whether or not you agree with the idea that he gets to have a boxing career. He still gets to have one after last night. All right, you ready for my news anchor transition? Please. Speaking of knockouts, John Rahm was knocked out of the (laughs) Memorial Tournament after he tested positive for COVID Saturday night. Transitions are overrated. (laughs) Just get Uh, to it. He had a six-stroke lead. He was 18-under through the third round of the Memorial. I think it was Morikawa was 12-under. I know Cantlay ended up winning it, but I don't remember if he's tied at the time. Um, But he had a gigantic lead through 54 holes. Then he gets knocked out because of COVID three rounds into the event. Do you give a bleep? I guess you never said if you gave a bleep about Logan Paul going to the I do give a bleep about the, the Logan Paul yeah. fight, even though I didn't watch it last night. Yeah, so six-stroke lead through three rounds, and as he's walking off the 18 green, John Rahm informed that he has tested positive for COVID, and according to the PGA Tour's protocols, that means you're done. Now, reportedly, John Rahm got, te- or got his vaccine last week. I don't know if that means his first shot or if he got both doses, but, you know, per CDC, and if you've got the vaccine by now, you already know this, that they say you're not totally going to see the benefits of the vaccine for two full weeks. So the fact that you got the shot last week means that you are still at risk for contracting and spreading the virus. There's no guarantee that John Rahm would have won the memorial last week, but I mean... I don't remember the last time somebody blew a six-stroke lead heading into Sunday. No, and what what did Cantlay end up winning at? Was it 13-under, 12-under? Yeah, they had playoff. So, um, Rom would have had, I mean, he could have gone five over on Sunday. Right, he wouldn't have won. lost. He yeah. wouldn't have lost, okay? He would not have lost. Um, I can think of 1.6 million reasons why <laughs> you should get the COVID vaccine. Listen, man, it it's an indication that 
we're not quite out of the woods yet when it comes to COVID-19. But more than that, I mean, John Rahm's had plenty of time. I know he's a new father. He's been traveling the world. I know he's he lives in the United States, and he plays primarily on the PGA Tour. So even though he's Spanish, like he doesn't like reside in Spain. But golfers travel about as much as any profession, not professional sport, about as much as any profession. And you had plenty of time, plenty of resources to go and get the COVID vaccine. You didn't. So I feel for you, but also like you that's the consequences. And I don't know why he waited so long if he was on the fence about the vaccine. Uh, I'll tell you this. Um, the, vac- the COVID-19 vaccine, much like many other vaccines are modern miracles of science and if you'd like more information on why vaccines are good might I suggest uh, paying for a local newspaper subscription because they cover a lot of that there so um, I personally don't have a lick of sympathy for anybody who waited to get the vaccine because they have been widely available for quite some time now $1.6 $1.6 million. John Rahm's going to have a lot to think about. I know he's not hurting for cash. He's made a lot of it in his professional golf career, but... Money's uh, still money. Money is still money, and I'm sure, uh, you know, this will spark a debate on the on the vaccine versus non-vaccine. Like, yes, he was able to play great golf while having contracted COVID-19. If that's the way that you are choosing to view this situation, you have clearly missed the mark. And if that's the way John Rom feels, and I have no idea if he feels this way, but if that's the way John Rom feels, then like go ahead and complain about it and complain about the vaccine and and Joe Biden and having to get vaccines and COVID-19. And like, okay, but guess what? Patrick Cantley just got the vaccine and he's $1.6 million richer. So Does do this with that information US what Open you will. availability at all? I know that he was, I actually on Saturday was looking ahead to the U.S. Open odds, and John Rahm was the favorite. And I looked again this morning, and he is now 12 to 1 instead of 10 to 1. So it dropped him a little bit. But I, I don't know, like, I mean, that'd be a pretty big deal if one of your favorites in the tournament isn't able to play. Um, I don't know that it's going to affect his ability to play in the U.S. Open. It's certainly going to affect his ability to prepare for the U.S. Open. But, yeah, I do give a believe. Uh, Trevor Bauer had his first start since the MLB came out and announced saying punishments are coming for, they've been kind of like taking baseballs of different pitchers and like testing substances um, to see that all these pitchers are using substances. And certainly Trevor Bauer has been a guy that's, uh, been outspoken that everybody is using substances or 70% of the pitchers are using substances on the pit on the uh, balls and he's been a guy who's like toiled with different things in the offseason well after this announcement came out from the MLB he had his lowest spin rates of the season by over 200 like RPM or something like that the numbers probably don't mean anything to you but it was his lowest spin rate since 2019 so not just like by a little bit it was by a good amount of course, 2020, he won the Cy Young with higher spin rates. Do you give a bleep? Does this mean anything to you? I mean, it's like the worst offensive season we've ever seen in baseball. What, since 19, 
68, I believe it was, the year that was dubbed the year of the pitcher. That's the last time that the national batting average has been down this much. I saw a piece on The Athletic earlier that a lot of pitchers are using this substance called like Sticky Tack, which was developed by a former world champion powerlifter who had absolutely no idea that it was all the craze in baseball. Like doctoring, we joked yet last week about old Haas Radburn, right? Like doctoring the baseball is as entrenched with the sport as anything. I mean, doctoring the baseball, chewing tobacco, like I don't know. What else has been so synonymous with the sport and the sport has effectively allowed it to be a part of it? So... Yeah, it's a little bit, like, I'm not going to focus in on Trevor Bauer to say, like, what does this mean for him specifically? And he kind of spoke out and just said, if you're going to enforce it, then do the same thing across the board. But, like, how do you go about doctoring? How do you go about it? Like, is it going to be where you have to, like, inspect the players as they come out of the dugout before every game? Well, they go back into the dugout between every inning. What they've done so far this year, and I don't know how they haven't accumulated a bunch of data, but if... They'll just, like, take a baseball from the game. And they'll hold the baseball, like, after the pitcher has thrown it. So there's going to be something on there. And they'll save it. And they'll send it back to the MLB testing lab. And they'll look over the baseball and get it tested. So it's not something that you can stop in the moment. I mean, there are some times when they might. Like, uh, there was a situation with St. Louis a couple weeks ago where a reliever came in, had, like, a spot on his hat, Mm -hmm. and they made him change hats. Well, for the longest time, it was just sunscreen. Right. And... Rosin. Yeah. But now there's like like Trevor Bauer, like I said, he has the, one of those machines that tests spin rate. So in the offseason, he just applies all these different substances, sees what works. Like he said one that people use is Coca-Cola. I've heard that before. Um, they say this stuff, the spider tax stuff, mm-hmm. um, produced a fastball with over 500 more revolutions per minute than sunscreen or rosin. So, I mean, it, it's happening predominantly in the MLB and it's, it's happening very widely. Um so, yeah, I, I do give a bleep because I think it's going to have, like, a big impact on the MLB. I, I could see it being, like, maybe not to this level, but the same way we talk about the steroid era where we go back and you look at all these guys' stats and you go, oh, he had, a, he had 45 home runs, but, I mean, there were guys launching 55, 60. You know, it's just the steroid era. That's just the time. We might look back at this and, and be like, can you believe, like, they – the MLB commissioner like let this happen, but it's not. But it's not the same because it's not resulting necessarily. It is for pitchers. No, no, no. I'm saying it's not resulting in like less runs or less home runs. It's just guys aren't getting base. Guys aren't getting on base yeah. as much as they but are. But like, don't you think that? I mean, it is resulting in, in less runs to a certain degree. And like, do you think the same way we talk about like Hall of Fame votes, for instance? And certain people don't want to put, like, Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa in the Hall of Fame because of their ties to steroids. Couldn't we end up in the same boat in 20 years looking back on this and go, this guy was found to be using, whatever, rosin and sunscreen or this chemical on his fingers, and that's why he was such a good pitcher. I'm not going to vote him in the Hall of Fame. Well, of course. If that's the question that you're asking, are are crusty old baseball (laughs) writers going to use this to further their moral dilemma when filling out their Hall of Fame ballots? Obviously. Okay. They're looking for anything to uh, add to that dilemma. So, uh, of course. Yes, I do give a bleep. Okay, we got time for uh, one more. Jeff Bezos is going to space, mm. Nick. I mean, I could just leave it there. You have to give a bleep about that, right? 
Yeah, so he is going to space, but I think the headline here is that he's doing it on his own rocket. He started a space company, which is sort of kind of flown under the radar. Like everybody knows about Elon Musk and SpaceX. Jeff Bezos founded his own space company because that's what billionaires do. If you're a billionaire, you got to embark on this mission to go to space because what else to do with your money than spend it on the most ridiculously expensive thing possible, traveling out of this planet's atmosphere. Blue Origin is the name of Jeff Bezos's space company. And on July 20th, 15 days after Jeff Bezos is set to resign as the CEO of Amazon, he is going to be on the first crewed flight for Blue Origin called the New Shepherd. And he invited his little brother to come with him. And his brother's like, sure, I'll do it with you. <laughs> this seems, I mean, wild for a billionaire to be on the first rocket of his company's dime to go to, like, they've never put yeah. a human in space before. This company has never put a, a human in space and the richest man on the planet is going to be one of the first humans to do it. I like, okay, you know like when you watch like astronaut movies and stuff about NASA and stuff, you see all like the grueling training that they have to go through just to go <laughs> up there. Like, is he going to do that or is he just like thinking this is just going to be like a plane ride like on, on Southwest? I think he probably has a good idea of what it is, but like just to put it into perspective... This company is several years behind SpaceX, which has been embarking on these missions for a while now. Elon Musk has never been to space nor announced his his plans on going to space. So this is clearly like a chess move to say, this is how good our company is. This is how secure I am with our company. Because if it pays off, you'd have to think that the headlines alone would thrust Blue Origin into the same conversation as all of these billionaires, you know, Richard Branson with Virgin. Commercial space is the next frontier. Yeah. Getting people to pay thousands of dollars to take a plane trip to space. Mm -hmm. And if Jeff Bezos can go to space safely without dying and that rocket doesn't blow up, what happens? Oh, wow. Jeff Bezos went to space. He's so comfortable with it. Why wouldn't I be comfortable He's going to have it? the first Amazon superstore on the moon. Mark it down. And also, Amazon is... At some point, I believe, going to be building like movie studios, right? We already know that Tom Cruise has said he wants Once to go to space for a movie. I mean, these two are just going to become like best friends. Yeah, I'm 30 years old. Jeff Bezos founded Amazon when he was 30. Get to it. I'm behind schedule, but you you <laughs> aren't. You still have time to do something like this. By the t 27 years later, when he was my age, he founded Amazon. 27 years later, he's getting on his own rocket ship. Wow. To travel to space. That could be you in about 30 years. Oh. If you just get to work, man. Just get to work already. What are you yeah. doing? What are you doing with your life? Not enough. Not enough. I do give a bleep about this, though. I do, too. And listen, man. I don't... Christmas with the Kardashians on the moon. That's going to be the next, like, TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's take a break. Let's take a break. Because I was about <laughs> to say something inappropriate. All right. This is Rock Shark Sports Talk.
Support for today's episode comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. If you want to get the complete package, the Manscaped Ultra Smooth Package is a three-step kit to help keep your family jewels protected. Step one, the crop exfoliator infused with ingredients that can soothe, clear, and keep the skin on and around your groin feeling refreshed, reducing the risk of ingrown hairs by your delicates. Step two, the crop gel. See where you're shaving with our unique clear shaving gel just for the groin. And step three, it's time to shave the crop shaver was designed for shaving the groin area with confidence. Three precision blades include extra-wide lubricating strips and a pivoting head for the ultimate groin grooming experience. Get 20% off, plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use the code RCST. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. We are officially one month away from the NBA draft withdrawal deadline, and there are a trio of Jayhawks who have yet to make a decision. Ochai Baji, Jalen Wilson, and Remy Martin. Do we get to count Remy? Remy Remy is a Jayhawk, even though he's never played a game for KU because he has officially signed with Kansas, but I don't know if he's ever stepped foot on Kansas. He's basically like Billy Preston right now. Right. Jayhawk legend. Yeah. So even if Remy were to say, I'm staying in the draft, I still think we get to claim him forever. And if he goes on to have a a really illustrious NBA career, we would still get to claim him as a Jayhawk because he signed his name on that line. So we don't know what any of those guys are going to do. We can suppose and we can guess. And I think right now there's really only one guy left to talk about because I would be really surprised if either Remy Martin or Jalen Wilson elected to keep their names in the draft. It just wouldn't make any sense because I think for both of them, you're just not on the NBA radar. It's it's less about you can come back and improve your stock and more so just about the idea that I don't know what your options are going to be because even if you, if you don't care if you get drafted, if you don't care if you're one of those first 60 guys who hears your name called, each team only gets one two-way contract. And for a guy like Jason Jalen Wilson, who started last season so strong, yet finished with a bit of a dud, and I know that's not entirely fair because of the COVID test, and then he didn't really play in the NCAA tournament, you have to be able to separate what you think of him as a college player versus what you think he could become in the NBA. But I just think about a guy, 6'8", 215 wing, who at times showed the ability to take over games, who was a mismatch nightmare. That's not going to persist at the next level unless the ability to take over games becomes more of a consistent threat, which the only way you'd be able to prove that by coming back next season. He was a... 33% three-point shooter last year. If you go from being a 33% three-point shooter to uh, 37, 38, all of a sudden you look like a legitimate stretch four. Because how many times have we seen guys who 
are the prototypical NBA wings who can do everything except for shoot, right? They're good athletes. They're good rebounders. They're good defenders. They get to the league and we say, oh, all they got to do is develop a jump shot. If they get that, they're going to be a star. And then what happens? They never develop the jump shot. I mean, look at Josh Jackson. Like, and not, and not just a KU thing, but like Michael Kidd Gilchrist. All these, Rondé Hollis Jefferson. There's so many of those guys who fit that mold where we think all they got to do is figure out how to shoot. Well, Sounds some like guys... the common denominator. They all have three names. Is, yeah, right, exactly. And some guys, they, they do figure it out. And yeah, they end up being great. But for Jalen Wilson, he's not the supreme athlete. He's not somebody you say, oh, he, he plays above the rim or he's an elite defender. So the idea that he has to develop a more consistent jumper is almost a necessity because I don't know how else you do the addition where it ends up with him being a serviceable NBA player if it doesn't at the very least include a consistent knockdown jumper. Mm-hmm. Because if, if he doesn't have that, then he'd have to be great at everything else. And your margin for error for for going about that would be so razor thin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But also, if he does have that jump shot, then it's like it's perfect for him to come back because everything we've talked about with the additions this team has made is with the offense kind of stuck in the mud last year, how do you get better at creating for others? How do you find somebody who can make that late bucket in a shot clock? And by having that guy, it's going to open things up for what seemingly last year you had a bunch of players for KU who like from a shooting perspective, from the outside, they were more set shooters. They're not create off the dribble shooters. And I don't think that's ever going to be what we're talking about here with Jalen. It is going to be more about can you consistently hit those open shots. So if you have Remy Martin, who's able to get into the lane, and you have Joe Yesifu, who I saw like a video over the weekend where he's just hitting these like crazy floaters in some pickup game against who knows if they're any good. Um, But obviously a guy who's really athletic and will get to the rim is – Shooting numbers may be a little inconsistent, but it's going to open things up for other guys. So if you're Jalen, just by coming back and playing around those guys, your three-point shooting, I don't know, maybe it it's not that much better next year, but just by being in a better fit, the numbers are going to look better. Scouting is such an inexact science, and we oftentimes from the outside like to give scouts a lot of credit and say, well, they'll see through this and they'll see through that. Like if you're at a smaller school – and you're not playing around talent, the scouts will notice that, and they're not going to hold that against you. Vice versa, if you're on a super team and your stats are maybe padded by the fact that you're in the best possible scenario and all these players are bringing the best out of you, they're going to see through that as well, and they'll say, okay, maybe he's not quite that special. But I'm telling you right now, if you do play on one of those super teams and you do play on a team that brings the best out of you, it's absolutely going to enhance your draft stock because the human element is impossible mm. to remove from the scouting process. Yeah, I mean, if you told me that Jalen comes back, um, I don't know. You could say that like his numbers, like his total numbers, are not going to be as good. I mean, he averaged about 12 points, 8 rebounds per game. But here's the thing. He was second on the team in usage rate. David McCormick was first. Um, technically, Tyon and Michael Jankovic had no, we don't usage got rates, but exactly. So among the players who actually played, he was second in usage rate. That probably won't happen this next year because I would imagine Remy Martin, David McCormick will probably be your top two. Maybe Joe Yesifu slides in there in the top three. If Ochai's back, he could be in there as well. You're probably not going to get as many of the shares of the offensive touches, but the ones you're going to get are going to be more efficient, and I think that's more important. But if you're Jalen, don't you look at that and say, okay, 
I was the third option on the team last year behind David and Ochai. Now Remy Martin's in the mix. I'm not if if Ochai comes back, I'm not going to jump ahead of him. I'm not going to jump ahead of David. Remy comes in and is probably number one or number two in shots per game. How much does that weigh your weigh in when you look at your potential role for next year and you say, I could be fourth on the team in in shots per game? Sure. Why would why would I want to come back and have a smaller role? Yeah, yeah, that that might impact it. Um I guess I don't know. Do we just have to come to the realization now to say this isn't an Ochai thing where you just say, Well, if you come back this one year and do well, maybe you're a first round pick, maybe you're an early second round pick. With Jalen, is that even the case? You know, because it's not the same with Ochai where it is the three and D wing that's so sought after in the NBA, where it's this guy with all this athleticism. With Jalen, you kind of know what he is, right? So even if Jalen is a is a first team All American, it's more in the ilk of Diedrich Lawson. Like, how well does this fit into the NBA, right? Yeah, well, I I would think the one commonality that we have between Ochai and Jalen, and I know that's not what you're talking about, but. The one commonality between both of them is that if either one of them comes back next year and has a much improved scoring repertoire, if either one of them can come back and all of a sudden be a guy that can go get their own shot, that can take guys off the dribble and pull up from the mid-range, from three-point range, and be a lethal knockdown shooter, their draft stock skyrockets. Yeah, 100%. skyrockets. And specifically for Jalen, you've only got one year of college under your belt versus Ochai, where you've had two and a half two and a half years. You come back next year, all of a sudden you're one of the old guys in the draft class. Whereas Jalen, okay, you got injured year one last year, burst onto the scene as an impact freshman. If you make that leap from freshman to sophomore, scouts are going to look at you and say, every year we've seen you, you've gotten significantly better. And you're a junior, but you're not technically, or you're going to be a redshirt sophomore, yet you only have two years of playing under your belt. I think that's going to bode well for him to the point where he's a guy who I could see being a first-round draft pick if he comes back for, for another year. But it's all going to be contingent upon coming back and improving. Even if the raw numbers aren't as good, if you come back next year and you're a 37 38% three-point shooter, you're already, we know, an elite rebounder for your position even if there are knocks with the athleticism or the defensive potential, you're going to have two really good niches to hang your hat on. If you're a six-eight guy who can go get your own shot and you have a nose for the basketball when it comes to rebounding. Like that, that's, that's two really good quality characteristics to have if yeah. you want to be a first-round pick. It is. I just, I almost view it kind of where I was going with that is for a guy who's not in the top 100 list. I mean, we've seen crazy rises before. If he comes back to a team where he might be the fourth option, again, there's nothing wrong with that. If your team wins a lot of games and you're efficient in doing so, even if you're only averaging 10 and 7, but it's on, like you said, 38% from three, it's going to get noticed. But it might be more realistic if he comes back onto this team for him to be the star of the following year's team and have to stick around another year. Yeah, but he'll never view it like that. No, he won't. But that's kind of where I'm going with Because you can't sell. You can't sell anybody who's currently in the NBA draft you can't sell them if you're a coach on, give it two, two more, more years. Yeah. <laughs> what? Right. Well, two more years, I might not even do one more year. I just, I, I think the path is more there that if you said you have one year to move up as high as you can in the NBA draft, the path I think is more there for Ochai than it is Jalen. 
Because he's an elite shooter already. Correct. Or he's a great shooter. And that's shooter. what I'm saying. If you look, if you fast forward two years, and it's like, oh, Remy Martin's gone. Oh, Ochai Baji's gone. Now Jalen's the guy coming back. David McCormick's gone. I'm just not, you know, it's I can talk out of both sides of my mouth when it comes to Ochai. Because on one hand, I do think he's someone who could significantly increase his stock if he comes back to say, like just like with Jalen, Showcase the ability to go get your own shot. You are 6'5", playing essentially the three in college. You're not playing the three in the NBA. You're 6'5". You're playing the two. In the modern NBA, there are only two ways to go about being a two. Be a secondary ball handler or be an absolute lethal knockdown shooter. He's neither one of those. He's neither one of those. So if Ochai elects to keep his name in the draft, which he has every right to do, and if he does, God bless him, he's probably not on an NBA roster this year. I would be very surprised. I don't know what he brings to the table to the NBA right now without major improvements to his game. That is the pitch for him coming back. The flip side and the part that makes me feel a bit like a hypocrite is that I don't know how realistic it is that he's going to improve on those things. Like I can say become a better shooter, become a better driver, a better ball handler. Well, maybe that's just not going to be the case. Maybe he's never going to be really gifted in those areas, which some guys just aren't. Like, Ochai kind of has an upright game, mm-hmm. you know? He's not some... Even, like, Wayne Selden had uh, a little bit of the ability to put the ball on the deck and Dunk get to the him. rim. Yeah, Like, he, that's who he is to me. He is sort of uh, a lesser version of Wayne Selden. But I think that's a good comparison because what did Wayne Selden do? Came back junior year after testing the water two years in a row, all of a sudden, perfect team around him, right? You had two primary ball handlers. He wasn't asked to do much ball handling. He just got to kind of roam, be athletic, and all of a sudden showcased an improved jump shot. Ochai's already got the jump shot. If he can improve the, the athleticism and the creating ability... And now knowing that you've got the best cast around you that you've ever had in your collegiate career, just by default, your numbers are going to be better. You're going to get better looks. There's going to be more spacing, more opportunity for you to shoot, more opportunity for you to drive and score at the rim. The offense as a whole is going to be better. You'll be on a better team. Like There's so many boxes that next year's team would check for a guy like Ojai. The big question that none of us can answer, though, is does any of that matter to you? I think the biggest thing for me with Ojai is... Like, what's worst-case scenario? Obviously, there's always doomsday. But, like, would Ochai be worse next year than he was this year? No, I don't think so. But there's a chance he's better. I do have that question with Jalen. Not if he's worse, but just by nature of the role. Because the more I think about this, if you are option four or option five, your value offensively becomes lessened. Like, in the standpoint of... You don't need five guys on the court who can score, right? No. Like, Baylor has a Mark Vital on the court or a center, like a Flo Thamba. You need that fourth or fifth guy to have a niche outside exactly. of what you're already good at. And if if you're the fourth option on the floor, you better be good at some of those other things. Now, he's good enough at rebounding. What happens if the defense isn't there? Is there a case to be made that Jalen Wilson could be? I mean, we've talked all this time about with how Christian Brown, his struggles at the end of the season, would he lose a starting spot next year? You know, will Joe Yesifu and Remy Martin take a starting spot? Would that be up in the air with Jalen, you know? Jalen's a weird one because of the way that people like to examine the relationship that he has with Bill Self. Because 
Jalen Wilson got yelled at a lot. When you saw Bill explode on the sidelines, a lot of times as they're going to commercial break, you'd see the players walking over to the huddle and his eyes were lasered in on Jalen Wilson. And it makes you wonder, not about what's that relationship like? Does he secretly hate Bill Self? Does Bill Self not like? It's not about that at all. If you want to speculate about that, go right ahead. What it's more about is... Do you think Jalen really likes getting yelled right. at? Not, not, Nobody does. Does he think yeah. I does he do I think my coach hates me? No. Do I like this though? Right. Do I like getting yelled at all the time? Of not. Probably not. The flip side of that is do you want to go play professionally? You think that's going away? You think all of a sudden the coach is going to be nice and warm and cuddly? Probably not. But how possible is it? Because this is not that crazy of an idea. Again, like I think Jalen would be good if he came back. But if KU found out that their best five lineup was Remy Martin, Joe Yesifu, Christian Brown, Ochai at the four, and David at the five. And if that happened, which, again, that's very possible. That's not, like, far-fetched idea. No. If that happened, Jalen Wilson is, at that point, kind of screwed, right? At least from going pro the next year. Because at that point, he's playing 20 minutes a game. I don't know about that last part. Okay. I don't know that I would assume because the starting lineup looks a certain I'm way. I'm not saying that we the can, starting lineup. I'm saying uh, the best five. Maybe, but I still I still think that there's room for a sixth man to play 25-plus minutes a game. Not saying it's likely, but it can definitely happen. And we know this much. Jalen Wilson provides definite upside, and we saw it in spurts. And we didn't see it near the end of the season when he kind of finished with a thud. But we saw it early, and you can't... I mean, there were games where KU didn't win if it weren't for late-game heroics from Jalen. But then you also have to wonder, okay, if he didn't hit a one shot here, one shot there, one shot there, would we talk about it in the same way? Because the same way we talk about teams, hey, we don't really care what you did in November and December in non-com play when it gets to March. Is it fair to do the same thing with players? We don't really care what you did in non-com play. What did you do in conference play? What did you do in the postseason, which didn't really exist for for Jalen this past year? It's a weird, it's a weird sort of discussion to have, man, because I feel like for the, this entire offseason, we have just sort of assumed, okay, Jalen's coming back, but what about Ochai? I still think Jalen's coming back. I really do. But it's it's really difficult to pinpoint exactly what his role is going to look like on next year's team. Whereas with everybody else that is returning, with Dave, with Ocha, even Christian, because I've said I don't think Christian's going to start, he's still going to play. With Jalen, he's the guy who you can look at and say, I could see a, a significant change in your role next year. Because unlike last year, you actually have real competition at that position. There wasn't anybody... Okay, you want to take Jalen out? Who are you putting in? You're putting in Tristan and Aruna. You're putting in Tyon Grant Foster. Those guys were not difference makers whatsoever. As much as some people tried to make them, oh, let's see more. Let's see what some of this athleticism from Tristan does, some of that energy, some of the Tyon Grant Foster athleticism. It never happened. Jalen didn't have any motivation behind him. And he was a freshman, too. We've seen how Bill Self handles freshmen. That's another reason for optimism, but you can sort of play this pro-con game with all these guys in the decision that they need to make and the decisions that coaches are going to have in terms of what their roles are going to be. One month, one, one, one month to make those decisions. I'd imagine 
for at least a couple of them, those decisions are already made. I think Jalen's coming back. I think Remy Martin's coming back. Ochai is the big one. But each one of those decisions going to have huge impacts on Kansas on the floor next season. All right, two hours down, one to go with Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. You are listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk.